This is Michael Easley in Contact. Sunday morning. What does it feel like? We're tired all week. Uh, we've been working early and late. Perhaps Saturday was a catch-up day. Maybe we did something fun, did some projects around the house, ran some errands. Sunday morning is the what? It's the most. It's the morning we're the most tired. I guess Monday being the second one. But we wake up and it's like, oh, it's Sunday morning. How many of us are morning people and we're eager to get up and go to church? What a strange idea. How do we reframe, how do we look differently at this activity, quote, going to church? Which, by the way, I hope you are part of a local assembly. I hope you're a part of a local church. Whether you're a member or not, that's a different conversation. But do you fellowship regularly with a group of people, imperfect all, and we gather together corporately, we pray, we sing songs that are a little different than the world, Uh, We have an experience that's a little different. We're sitting in a room that's different. But beyond the trappings of, quote, going to church, we are assembling as the most extraordinary, the most important audience on the planet. We are assembling to worship our God and King. The problem with going to church is because we live in such a consumerism context, such a materialistic world, it's very hard for us to go and be a part of something where we're not, quote, getting something in return, where instead we're engaged, we're a part of it, and we're listening and being ministered to through prayer, through praise, through song, and through exposition or explanation of his word. We continue part two of why in the world go to church, or how do we attend church, or why should I go to church? And I want you to think with me about why it is important for the believer to assemble together and to worship Christ. In chapter 316 of Colossians, Paul wrote, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Uh, I love that phrase, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. This passage in context is about the new life in Christ in Colossians 3. Now that you know Christ, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Acts 2.42, dedicated to the apostles' teaching. The word is where it begins, the spoken word and the word that continues to speak to us. Let it richly dwell in you. And as a result, we have this expression of singing coming out, which is very interesting. Uh, Cindy and I have a small group, a community group in our home. Uh, It's a two-year group that we do, young married couples. And one of the pieces of material we use is a companion study called Living by the Book. There's a book and workbook. And it takes about a year, not quite, to go through the the workbook along with the book. And... um, I wish you could see what happens, what transpires in a group. When we all start this together, we're filling in blanks, doing the assignments. And in the way we do it, about the first year, I sort of lead and facilitate the group. And then I turn it over to them to lead the group. And I sort of physically scoot out of the circle just a little bit and let them start leading the group. And uh, I come alongside and meet with them one-on-one and try to encourage them a little bit. And I learn as much from them about life as they learn from sending me about marriage and family. But it's, it's a blast of a two years. And um, we, on the front of the study, I tell them that they have to do homework. It's like a mini graduate school for two years. And um, I tell them it's not hard. It's actually easy, but it takes a long time. 
Bible study isn't hard. It just takes a long time to learn how to do it. But in one year, what transpired, it's transformational to watch their view of Scripture in one year just by paint by numbers, learning how to study the Bible. A few weeks ago, our current group, one young man's a teacher, a school teacher, and he was leading that night. And he said, okay, before we begin, I have a three-minute exercise I want to do with you. Uh, I want to fill in the blank, so to speak. Before this group, I dot, dot, dot. Now, at this point in this group, I dot, dot, dot. And he gave him about four minutes to write down. And so we're all writing something down. And then he had us all share. And it was phenomenal. It, was, it gave me goosebumps. Because essentially they said, in some way, shape, or form, I read the Bible, but it was boring. I skipped over parts of it. I didn't understand it. Now I totally have the confidence to read the Bible and figure it out. And I love doing it. That was a summary. And I'm almost in tears, just sitting there going, wow. It was not quite a year. And look how far they've come. Because fellowship, community, focused on the word of Christ, breaking bread, doing this thing together, and praying It's a formula, and it works. It's not that hard. It does take time, but it's not hard. And so that foundation they give is hopefully changing their lives. When the word of Christ richly dwells in you, something happens. In this passage, Paul says, you sing. Now, we're in Music City, so everybody likes music, right? Um, In 1 Chronicles 25, David appointed a host of musicians from the Levitical priest. Um, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, their singular psalm, the Psalter, 150 of them. Others that were in different parts of the Old Testament not included in the Psalter proper, but they were to commemorate, to teach, to explain, to expand on what was happening in the life of the pious Jew, the life of the believer. Corporate worship is not the warm-up before the long, boring sermon. Corporate worship is a response of the Word of Christ richly dwelling in us, and we align ourselves with lyric, with the benefit of music, so that it's easy to remember, melodic, we sing it, you retain something you sing so much faster than cold memorization. You know the words of the song in three times, right? You got the words of the song down 80% of them. But if you had to memorize Psalm 4, it would take you a lot longer. Put it to music, your brain picks it up. It's the word of Christ richly dwelling in us. Corporate worship is not getting ready for the sermon. Now, I've been in on staff at, I guess, three or four churches involved with about five or six in different capacities of serving and whatnot. And this is the first church I've been involved with that didn't have worship wars as one of the big issues. I was in a very traditional church for 12 years that was choir robes and orchestra, 60 feet, pull, I mean, these were pros, pro orchestra, organ, you know, uh, a whole nine yards. And, oh, we had the worship wars. Oh, my word. People didn't like this, didn't like that, always complaining. We had the quartets, the quintets, the non-tets, you know, we had all we had all that stuff. And when we took off the polyester choir robes, you'd have thought we'd have gone liberal. Oh gosh, people were like in rebellion. You're not wearing choir robes anymore. Oh my going to hell. I mean it was it was exciting. Uh, we had worship wars all the time up there. People always complaining to me about what we sang and didn't sing. And um, I learned something then, and it's been so easy here. I learned something then. I got to know these people that played in the orchestra, that led those songs, the people that dressed up in those robes. And I got to know they loved Christ. They were using their gifts, talents, and abilities to try to lead the church in worship. And to lead a group of preferential people with different music preferences is no small assignment. Granted, we may sing uh, songs that we like but they're probably not what is on your radio or podcast or playlist all day long. 
there probably is a different playlist. Mine is different. And that's where preference, preference comes into all this. It makes it complex, right? I think the reason we don't have worship wars here is, number one, God's great kindness. Number two, Rob Howard. Because Rob is the one who shepherds all the different people that stand up here. Mandy Mosley leading this morning. Rob's in the back. Rob's met with her. They've had conversations. We met her through Carl Carty. And when, when Jeremy Diver was here, when, Luke, uh, when Carl Carty comes down, Luke Brown now it comes back and forth some. Has Luke been down here yet? Has Luke come in led worship? Um, and these, these men and women, Lindsay McCall, that, that we have as part of our body, one of the big issues for Rob is ego. Does the ego stay at the door? Because we're not performing or entertaining. We're trying to lead people to worship Christ. And that's very different. So when they sit out in the audience, in the congregation, last week I looked out at two worship leaders with their spouses sitting there on Saturday night. I'm going, I can't believe they're here at church volitionally. They're not on the road, and they choose to be. There's one I saw this morning here. They're sitting there volitionally because they want to come to church and be part. It's not about them. But for you and me, it's a choice to respond. And because I love Rob and love what he does with Tim and Mandy and Jeremy. By the way, Jeremy and I text all the time, and I keep telling him he's got to repent and come home. So you know, um, but uh, there's no ego, and they love Christ. And so I look past the preference of the music, and I look at the John Mayer, the Mark Hammond, or the Kurt I can play anything Heineke or whoever it is, and I go, they love Jesus, and it's so cool to see them use their gift, talents, and ability. And that should, it helps me. What I'm trying to say is, will that help you engage in that singing? When you don't sing, their job is hard. When, you're, when you sing, they love doing what they do. And if the word of Christ dwells richly in us, Paul says there'll be an expression of songs, hymns, and spiritual things that come out of us. It is a choice to worship. The psalmist says, I will sing of loving kindness and justice. I will sing praises to you. I will give heed to the blameless way. Those are choices, not, hey, I think I'm going to sing. It's a declared choice. I will do this thing because it's a right and proper response as the word of Christ richly dwells in us. Fourth, choosing to pray very briefly, read with me, 2 Corinthians 1, 11. You also, joining and helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Now, I only want to touch on this briefly, but prayer is part of the communal life. It's hard in a church service to pray corporately because we are trying to worship in a component we can't and trying to teach in a component. And it's just a matter of time. But we hope you pray on your own. We hope your community groups pray. Our, our groups that we meet, we, we pray every time. We might pray in the front end. We might pray individually. We might pray in the back end. We might have one person pray for the whole thing. It just varies. Every single week we do it a little differently. But prayer is integral and in watching how we grow in our prayer life, not just answered prayers. That's sort of another issue. This verse always catches me. The reason I put it on the insert, um, Paul's saying, your prayers help me. That's the 140 character version. Your prayers help me. Um, because uh, I talk about my back issues a lot. Many people come up and say, we pray for you. It's always, this is my favorite one. I pulled my back this weekend. I thought about you the whole time. Like, oh, cool, whatever that means, okay. I'm a pain in your back, is that what it means? But, but uh, I appreciate 
People say to me all the time, we pray for you, how's your back? And, and if it's more than like a 90-second conversation, I'll often say, you know, if half the people who told me they prayed for me stopped praying, I would spontaneously evaporate. In ways I cannot explain, I fully believe your prayers sustain me. I have a friend who I met in third grade. He was in fifth. We're still friends to this day. That's a long time. His wife told me, he would never tell me. He, he says, Michael, he prays for you every morning. On Sunday, he gets up early and he prays 30 minutes for you on Sunday morning because he knows you're preaching. I have a doctor friend who's now retired in the, DC, in the Dallas area. And uh, if, I see, if, I, if I called him, emailed him, or saw him today, he would say, I've been praying for whatever I told him last time. How is it going? Well, why does he care about me, for goodness sakes? And all the godly, silver-haired widows who are the best prayers on the planet. And you get around them, you feel like a first grader in your prayers who pray for you, for your children, your grandchildren, who pray for me. I don't understand all I know, men and women, but I believe the prayers of the saints sustain us. That's the point I want to make here. Fourth, choosing to listen. I love technology, but I would say this is the chief part of our problem when you come in this door, why this experience is so different than what it is like out in the world. Out in the world, it's 140 characters, it's instantaneous, it's Pinterest, it's Instagram, Facebook's sort of for old people now. Uh, what's the next thing coming? Who knows? Snapchat with video, who knows what's going to happen next? But as these things progress, it's so quick, it's so truncated, the media, the technology behind it, the YouTube searches as opposed to reading content searches, everything works against us. Ostensibly to read a book, forget it. And it's a big book, no less. It's just counter everything our culture is. So when you come, you have to choose and listen. We have lost the discipline of listening. We've lost, most of us, the discipline of reading. Um, not only are we easily bored, we're easily distracted. Jesus said many times, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. I went through Deuteronomy three weeks ago and just looked up every time the word listen was used and it was chilling. Listen, listen, listen. You don't listen, 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 listen. We've lost the ability to listen. That's why sermons are long and boring because we come in the door. Where else do you listen for 30 or 40 minutes or 45 or 55? First Timothy 4, 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, Timothy teach people you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine. You have to know what the Scripture says. You have to know doctrine, Timothy, and your job is to be a good servant and teach these things. James 1.22 is perhaps the most um, uh, difficult verse for us to swallow as far as convicting. But prove yourself doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Easy to listen to our spouse when they are right at us. We tune it out. You think your teenager listens to you because you lecture him or her? Oh, Dad, I never thought of that. Thanks for that lecture. Gosh, it makes my life so much better. I should realize I should save money, not spend it. Thanks, Dad. I'll never do it again. We lecture because we like it. They don't listen. Do we listen to the Word of God? Do you listen past the personal preferences of a preacher and a personality, and do you hear God's word? Or is this technological culture distracting us so much we 
delude ourselves, a very rare word in the New Testament. It means to cheat or deceive yourself by false reasoning. Voltaire wrote, The human brain is a complex organ with a wonderful power of enabling man to find reasons to continuing to believe whatever he wants to believe. That's why we make churches in our own image. Finally, what do you do when you find yourself bored? Notice I said when, not if. Because I know sometimes you're bored. Read the passage and make your own observations. I've told you many times, if I'm boring you, read the passage. When I was a grader in grad school, there was a student uh, who I graded his papers. His last name was Boring. He became a pastor. Pastor Boring. God, I mean, I changed my name or profession, you know. I'd be a dentist or something. I mean, goodness gracious, Pastor Boring. What's the main idea of the section? What's the theme? You can do this on your own. Take notes in your Bible. I have a good friend. I've told you this story before. He looks at my Bible and goes, Michael, you haven't read your Bible, but you've colored most of it. Because I take feverish notes in my Bible. As I did this morning when I was in my devotions in Deuteronomy 32. I took all these notes in the Bible because I forget everything. And what meant something to me, I write it down. And I pray through it. These next two revolutionized my view of Scripture. What does the passage tell me about God's character? What does it reveal about my character? I did this as you know, as a guy who writes sermons for a living. Uh, for years, on the header of my little notes, I had this little header with the page number that said, "What are you trying to do to do to these poor people?" It's still in front of my Bible. The greatest fear I have is to be a fat, boring preacher. Greatest fear in life, because I've listened to a lot of boring preaching, and I go, "God help me not to do that to your people." They're worth you dying for. I should do my level best to at least keep them interested. And I know people drift in and out. We all do. But this helped me a lot because I'm a word guy. I like talking about paroxysmos and sunagoge and ecclesia. I like those words, and so do 1% of you. <laughs> but I'm trying to educate you a little bit. I'm trying to nudge you along a little bit to think a little more critically. I'm trying to get you excited about something maybe you haven't seen before. It's, there's a method in there. I mean, if all you read were Louis L'Amour novels and romance novels, your reading skills now 6th grade, not 12th. I'd like to see you be a 12th grader when you read the Bible. That's all it is. It's not that hard. It's a 12th grader. you got to think a little bit. It's not hard. It's easy, but it takes time. So when I get lost in the weeds and I love this stuff, I can spend 40% of my time chasing down every word in the Hebrew or Greek text. That's how I was, I'm wired. I'm weird. doesn't help you a bit. So I back up and go, okay, what's this passage telling me about God's character? And when you listen to me, I hope you hear some of those big ideas. Lloyd and Bill have a different bent. They have different gifts and strengths. That's the fun part of the team. But you need to say, what's, what's this telling me about God? And maybe more importantly, what's it telling me about me? Because I can get lost. In, when we're in Ezra, men and women, it's going to be a stretch for us to communicate to you a chapter a week. And it's going to be a stretch for you to stay in the game when you come in these doors. So those will be good questions for you to ask and answer. What's it telling me about God's character? What, how, what, what am I supposed to know about my character? And then continue looking on down there. If convicted, or how do I apply it, rather? Um, Dr. Hendricks, who taught for 65 years at Dallas Seminary, was a wizard in Bible study methodology and probably one of the top 100 communicators I've ever heard in my life. And the prof always said the Christian community has a deficiency of vitamin A. Application. 
We take notes, we fill in notebooks, we fill in sermon notes on the back of the program, we throw them away, maybe put them in a box or put them in a binder. We never look at them again, we don't apply anything we've learned. He's right, isn't he? So when I was in Deuteronomy 20, uh, 32 this morning, I was going, okay, how do I apply this passage? Kind of tough sometimes. If I'm convicted, how do I respond to it? My thinking, my attitudes, my behavior. Do I need to ask forgiveness as I read a passage? Oh, I, I am totally deceived. I've deluded myself. I'm entrenched in that sin, whatever it would be. What one thing uh, could I share with a friend? And lastly, am I choosing to worship Jesus Christ as part of his community? When you come in these doors, we come from all sorts of backgrounds. But my prayer for you is to see yourself, not because you're a star or you're important, but you are important to God. This audience, this gathering, this assembly is more important than any venue where you'll pay $1,000, $3,000 to go see or be a part of for 90 minutes. Because you are the people of God. He died for you. He forgives all your sins. He loves you. He's not mad at you. He's not disgusted with you because you sin again and again and again. He died for that. He loves you more than you can comprehend. And you're never going to hear this out there. That's why the assembling is so important. Because it's the one place, hopefully, to God you will hear it. And it comes from his word, not somebody's opinion who is a clever communicator or a great performer or entertainer. It's based on his word. You are more important than front seat rows at any concert or venue or rock star or country star that you would go see. So can you reframe coming to church a little bit? Can you rethink it a little bit? I can get up Monday to Friday without any trouble. Sunday, I feel like I'm dead in the morning. I argue with my wife in the morning. We fight coming to church. The kids are out of control. Can you get ready the day before? Can you read something on the way to church? Can you sing a song or two in the car? Can you calibrate? Say, guys, we're going to worship as part of God's chosen people. Father, help us as we gather as a group of people, sinners all, limping all. We need you. We need you more now, perhaps, than we have at different times in our lives. The state of the world is enough to drive us to need you. Thanks that you love us, you care about us. Thanks that you died for every person in here, and you would do it again if necessary. You accomplished it once for all, praise God. And you've allowed us to be called your children, the perfect Father amidst a fallen world. Father, we do love you, but we need so much help to love you well. Encourage us to be a worshiping community of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Zig Ziglar once said, if you find the perfect church, don't go. You'll ruin it (laughs) because you'll be the one that's not perfect. There are no perfect churches. Churches are a mess. Churches are full of sinful people all. Sinful people all. So why do we gather? We gather as an assembly that responds to Christ's admonition uh, to join together under the apostles' teaching, under fellowship, under breaking of bread, and prayer. We need that recalibration each and every week, not because it's a Western thing to, quote, go to church, close quote, because we're assembling as a spiritual body in a literal, tangible way to worship Christ the King. It really comes down to a juxtaposition of, I am not going to get, I am going to give. 
I'm going to give to Christ my worship, my attention, my affection, my prayers, my contributions, my offering. That is an important part of worship, that we're giving a small part back to him as an act of worship and a statement of our faith. You know, if you're not part of a local assembly and maybe you've tried and been dissatisfied or disenfranchised, I want to encourage you, find a local assembly that opens the Bible and explains it on a regular basis. If you find a church like that, you're probably going to find a good church that holds a high view of Scripture, the exposition of the Word of God. As always, my bent is going to be, what does the passage say? This is Michael Easley in Context. And I hope you have a local context where you're part of the body of Christ. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context.